This morning's reading is from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wilderness, wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks, to, seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told, you, told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know sh that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Good morning again, church. Uh, my, again, my name is Timothy, and it is my honor and privilege to share with you uh, the Word of God this morning. We are continuing in our sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, The Life of David. Uh, if you're just joining us, so we're kind of jumping in here in the middle. Uh, I'm going to pray for us before we... Uh, dive in, and then we'll uh, examine the text. Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth. And I pray that you would use your word to speak to us this morning, uh, that it would speak to our hearts, 
Uh, I pray that as we encounter you through your word, that we would be transformed, that we would not be the same people when we leave this place. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who don't know, I have uh, three children under the age of six and one on the way, which is a wonderful blessing. Amen. Yeah. And one of the, (laughs) it is, it really is. (laughs) And uh, one of the best parts of parenting small children is that you get to observe your children learning new words. Uh, I love this. And the reason it's so fun is because they often operate out of an insufficient understanding of what the word actually means, which makes for rich uh, conversations. For example, one of my son's favorite new words is boss. Uh, he learned this from his nephew who uses the word roughly 67 times a day. Uh, and apparently the kids these days use this word to refer to someone of exemplary skills. Uh, I think the word when I was a kid was stud. Uh, so I'm, I'm dating myself a bit, but, uh, but what my son has deciphered thus far is that to be a boss is very desirable, uh, but more importantly, a boss does whatever he or she wants. That's what a boss is. Uh, and along with that, my son has learned that in the Price House, me and mommy are the boss, and that is not up for negotiation. And so my son and I were talking the other day, and I could see the wheels churning, Uh, And he says, Daddy, when I get to be a daddy, will I be a boss? And I said, sure, you sure will, buddy, absolutely. And I could see that this excited him, but then he begins to push the application a little bit. He says, do I get to be the boss of sister? And I said, sure, why not? (laughs) No reason to burst his bubble. And then I see that twinkle in his eye, which means the next question is going to be a doozy. And he says, do I get to be the boss of mommy? And since mommy was nowhere to be found, I said, absolutely, you can be the boss of mommy. But unfortunately, he, he wouldn't quit. because He was on a roll, so he decided to go for one more. He says, daddy, when I get to be a daddy, do I get to be a boss of you? And I said, don't pressure, don't pressure luck, son. Clean your room. You know, get out of here. This is crazy. I, 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 uh, I didn't. We talked about that. But I I want to highlight something there um, in my son's silly banter, uh, that even at such a young age, because of the fall, because of sin entering the world, we are hardwired to resist authority. Every single one of us desperately wants to be our own boss. Amen? We long to not have to take orders from anyone. And even with that, the society that we live in encourages this way of thinking by portraying independence and self-sufficiency as the apex of life. That's what we should be striving for. However, what the scriptures make abundantly clear time and time again is that fundamental to the Christian life is the acknowledgement that we are not the boss. And that sin, sin at its essence, is the refusal to recognize God as boss. It is groping for boss-like status, if you will. And our text this morning is really a story about authority. It's a story about how God's authority, authority is to shape our lives and the consequences of refusing to live underneath that authority, 
of trying to be one's own boss. And so this morning I want to once again take a brief, brief look at the lives of both David and Saul and for us to examine together their postures towards the authority of God. And my hope being that as we dig into this text that each one of us might be compelled to strive to walk in right submission to God's authority in our own lives. Amen? That's where we're going. So let's dive into the text. Now at first glance, you might not recognize this theme of God's authority in our story. For one thing, we don't even hear God speak in this story. So how can this story be about the authority of one who seems to be silent? But look closely with me at the text. And I want to summarize some of what's happening here. The details of the narrative are, are almost laughable, right? David is, is once again running for his life, and his men, and he have posted up in this cave. It's a last-ditch effort to save themselves from destruction. And King Saul has put together this massive army in order to hunt down and destroy David and his men. And so militarily speaking, Saul has an unbelievable advantage here. I mean, there's about as much chance for David to survive as there would be for the Patriots to come back from a 25-point second-half deficit in the Super Bowl, right? I mean, unbelievable odds here. And yet the odds dramatically shift when by some strange coincidence, Saul leaves his position of strength, separates himself from his army, and wanders alone into the same exact cave that David is hiding in because he has to use the bathroom. What are the chances, right? The moral of the story is do not go to Vegas with King Saul, right? He is unlucky for sure. But now here, here is where the authority piece comes into play. In walks King Saul, and David's men rightfully go ballistic. They're like, boss, this is it. We got him. He is here. Can you believe it? He's walked in to our cave. In verse 4, they say, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So what are David's men saying? They're saying, David, this is not a coincidence. This is clearly God. David, God has gift-wrapped this opportunity for you. Take it. Take him down. And David hears the words from his friends, and he's almost persuaded. He grabs his weapon, and he sneaks over to where Saul is at work, if you will, and, and he's about to strike him down, and then something happens. And for some reason, David abandons the plan and instead cuts off the corner of Saul's cloak. Now I want to pause here and I want to fill in the text a little bit based on some helpful data that we get from other places in the Bible because I think apart from that we stand to miss the real thrust of this story. The text says in verse 5 that David cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So the Hebrew word here is kanap. And now if we read this text in isolation we inevitably fail to see the significance of the corner of the robe in the life of an Israelite. But what we learn from prior scriptures is that, and this would have been very apparent to the original audience, is that the custom of God's people was to wear garments such as this. I want to show you, give you a little visual today. 
Amen? <laughs> For the visual learner. So this is what it looks like. Okay? This is called a talit. Okay? And what, this, what we see here is this is spelled out clearly in multiple places in the Old Testament. I'm going to read one for you. It's going to be behind me. This is Numbers 15, and this is where we hear God describe this. Verse 37 says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels. You see the tassel? Make tassels. The Hebrew word here is tzitzi, on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassels of each corner. See the blue? It's... Wrapped in there. No, it's hard to see. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which, are in, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So what's going on here? God is commanding his people to wear these garments. Why? To be a constant visual reminder of God's law, the outworking of God's authority over his people, right? And to further illustrate this point, I know you can't see this. If we were a fancy church, I'd get the camera to zoom in. But there's five knots on the seat seat. And each of the knot represents one book of the Torah, okay? So the Torah is the foundation of God's law, the first five books of the Bible. And so you can imagine how this works. The people of God are walking around and they can feel and constantly see this reminder of God's authority, of His Word in their life. This was the first WWJD bracelet, right? I'm not, I'm not encouraging us to go back there, but the idea is quite similar. See, I wear this robe so that, Numbers 15, I will remember God's commandment and not do what is most natural and follow after my own heart and own eyes, which the text graphically says we are inclined to whore after, to give ourselves to. And what's interesting here is if you were to visit a, any practicing Jewish community today, you would see men with tassels like this hanging out below their garments. They still wear these. Uh, these are people that are taking seriously the command of Numbers 15 to this day. Pretty cool, huh? So now you've got this visual. Okay, let's go back to the story because the story is going to make a whole lot more sense now that we see what we're talking about. Verse 4. So David sneaks over to attack King Saul, and instead of killing him, he cuts off the corner of his robe, the seat seat, right? Now, how was he able to do this? This is pure speculation. The text does not say this. So what I'm about to give you is not necessarily true. I think it's true. <laughs> but I think it's safe to imagine that King Saul probably took the talit off to use the bathroom. Okay, I'm just guessing, but I think that's probably true, which then enabled Saul, David to sneak up and cut off the corner of his garment. Not a bad idea. I think hygiene seems to argue for that, uh, although the text doesn't say it. But there is, there's profound imagery here that I want you guys to see. What the text has revealed to us over the past few chapters is that King Saul has figuratively taken off the talit. God's anointed king has put, pulled himself out from underneath the authority of God. Do you see that? 
He's taking it off in the way that he is living his life and governing God's people. We see this spelled out earlier in Saul's life. 1 Samuel 15, we see where Saul has disobeyed God and Samuel has declared that God's anointing has moved from Saul to another. Verse 26, I'll read this to you. Samuel says to King Saul, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Samuel is saying, Saul, you rejected the authority of God. You wanted to be the boss, Saul. And because of that, God has been forced to remove you from the throne. Are you tracking with me what's happening here? Verse 27, Samuel turned to leave. This is huge. And Saul caught hold of the corner of his robe. This is, Samuel's, this is Saul's past, okay? Samuel caught corner of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one who is better than you. Did you catch that? This is not the first time that Saul has lost the seat seat. Okay, So when this happens, although David doesn't know this history, Saul is clearly remembering when this happened. And it's a painful reminder that God has removed his authority from King Saul. And now Saul knows who that neighbor is, right? It's David who's holding the seat seat in his hand. And so in summary, what we're witnessing here is the culmination of Saul's journey as king, tragically ending because he failed to submit to God's authority, and therefore he lost everything. No doubt, brothers and sisters, that should cultivate fear in us when it comes to rejecting the authority of God. More on that in a minute. But what about David? What is David's posture towards the authority of God in this passage? Look again with me at the text. I think we begin to recognize the difference in David's posture starting in verse 5. The text says that after he cut off the corner of Saul's robe, David's heart struck him. Such an important phrase here. What does it mean? What does it mean that David's heart struck him? What we see here in verse 5 is that David is beginning to realize that he has stepped out from underneath the authority of God. He's experiencing conviction, that feeling inside of us that reveals when we've done something wrong. But how does David know that he has stepped out from underneath God's authority? Where is that conviction coming from? That's a huge question for us. I believe it comes through a remembrance of God's word. Look at verse 6. David said, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Brothers and sisters, I think this is one of the most potent examples in Scripture of the Holy Spirit bringing truth to mind. You see that? Here the Spirit is reminding David of God's authoritative word that one is never to touch, harm, disgrace God's anointed. And David knew this. He knew this truth not as general revelation, not as common sense, but as a decree of God, something that God had declared to him. And sometimes something that God had authoritatively decreed is something that David feels committed to follow. 
And so God brings that to memory and the Spirit brings to mind this truth when David needs it most, right? In this moment of question, of this pivotal moment in his life. Brothers and sisters, I want to make this personal. Can I make this personal for us? How does this apply? I was studying the text this week and I was chewing on uh, this very section of the story and I looked down on my desk and I saw this. Does anybody know what this is? You probably, I know you can't really see it. Uh, this is a verse pack. It's a scripture memory verse pack. Uh, and the idea is you carry this around so that in your downtime you can work on memorizing God's word rather than pulling out your smartphone or the things I normally do. And, and mine, unfortunately, has been collecting dust on my desk for some time. But I'm reading this text and I'm studying it and I'm compelled to pull this thing out. So I start looking at it, and here those, he, these are some of the verses that came to mind as I was meditating on it. Uh, the first one that came to mind is Psalm 24, 4, and 5. It says, Teach me your way, O Lord. Guide me in your truth. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all day long. Okay? What a powerful picture of what it means to live under the authority of God. What a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live under here, right? Teach me your way, O oh God. Lead me in your truth and guide me. And the next verse that came to mind was Joshua 1.8. It said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on, on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. What's going on there? What's God doing there? He's pleading with us to get under here, right? Meditate on my word day and night. And what's the reward? Then we will make our way prosperous. Then we will have success. Why? That's not prosperity gospel. That's just a reminder that God is for us, that his way is good, and that if we live under his law, we will experience good things. Amen? Amen. And then the last verse that God placed on my heart, we actually prayed it um, in our liturgy earlier, which I didn't know we were going to do, but it's Psalm 139. This was really the icing on the cake. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is huge. What, such a bold prayer, right? What's the psalmist saying there? Actually, what, what's David saying there? Did you catch that? Okay, I'm, I'm in this text, and what is the verse that God brings to mind? He br brings to mind the prayer of David, okay? The, the, the David that we're talking about right here. That's not a coincidence. That's a living God involved in my life, in case you missed that. So David is, is, is speaking here, and he's crying out to God, and, and he's saying, God, show me the ways that I've come out from under your authority. He's saying, God, I know there's junk in here. I know that I'm a mess. Lord, help me. Show me how I'm not living underneath your authority. Show me what it looks like to come back underneath the authority of your word. Now, we need to connect the dots here and see how this all fits together. It should not surprise us that this is the prayer of David, Psalm 139, and that when David steps out from underneath the authority of God, he cuts off the seat seat of King Saul, that, that the Holy Spirit reminds him, right? That's, that's God answering David's prayer. He's saying, David, you're stepping out from underneath my authority. You need to come back underneath 
the authority of God. And so what does David do when the Holy Spirit brings that to mind? He comes back underneath the authority of God, and he does it while knowing that it could be very costly to him, right? He comes out and he confesses to uh, King Saul, knowing that King Saul is probably going to kill him. But he has this conviction, this commitment to the authority of God. I had a mentor ask me this question a long time ago, and it's stuck with me ever since. He said, he said, Timothy, are you willing to stand uncomfortable in obedience? Are you willing to stand uncomfortable in obedience? I want to share a story with you. Uh, my most vivid memory from seminary didn't happen in a classroom. Uh, it happened one day while I was at home at my desk, and I got a phone call from one of my classmates. And I could tell that something was wrong immediately when I picked up the phone. And on the phone was a friend of mine who confessed that he had cheated on a take-home test in one of our classes. Now that's obviously awful in and of itself, but to make matters worse, this friend of mine was planning to pursue doctoral studies after he graduated. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, if you fail a class in seminary, you do not do doctoral studies. Uh, Nobody will have you. And so my friend is at a real impasse, right? He has to make a choice. He can either sweep it under the rug and nobody will ever know, or he can confess what he's done, face the consequences. And he and I spent a lot of time talking and praying about what he was going to do. And later that day, he set up a meeting with the dean of the seminary and he confessed his misconduct. Brothers and sisters, that's what it looks like to stand uncomfortable in obedience. Amen? I want to return to the text. Verse 8, David walks out of the cave where he was safe and secure to repent to King Saul for what he had done. And And we know David's men are like, you are crazy. You have lost your mind. Do not do this. He will kill you. And so David has got this, all of these things telling him to not do this. God's providence seemed to say you should have killed him. His friends are unanimously saying, David, don't do this. And yet David has this conviction. He's resolved in this moment to stand uncomfortable in obedience. How? How is he able to do this? Look again at verse 12. And this is the verse we need to take home with us today. Verse 12. David says, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. What's David saying? He's saying, King Saul, I could have killed you. I could have stepped out from underneath God's authority, and I could have taken you down. I would have never had to worry about your sorry self ever again, but I refuse to do that. Why? Because I know deep down in the depths of my soul that I'm actually safer under here than I am out there. Did you hear that? David knows that he is safer under here than he is out there. It doesn't matter what his friends say. It doesn't matter what logic says. He knows that he is safer underneath the authority of God than he is out there. We have to then ask ourselves... Do we have that same conviction? 
Do we know God's character, His goodness, His faithfulness, His kindness enough to compel us to continue to submit to His authority even at great cost? Are we willing to stay in the face of great discomfort? We have to believe that the safest place to be is here underneath the authority of God's Word. I want to give us a few examples to see if we might be able to know where our heart is. And this is conviction for me as well as you. Ways that we might be able to tell whether God's Word is truly authoritative in our life, whether we are in submission to God. And these are a few. There are a multitude. How do you, how do you view your money, church? How do you view your money? This is a topic that's talked about all over the Scriptures. Is your money something that you have worked hard for and earned, and therefore you can do with it whatever you please? Or is it something that you see as a gift from God that He has entrusted to you to steward well? What about your body? Do you embrace what the culture says, that your body is simply an instrument for personal fulfillment and pleasure? Or do you recognize, as the Scripture says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are to protect it from defilement and enjoy it in ways that God has graciously prescribed for us to do so? What about your work? Do you see your work as just a means to a paycheck? Or rather, do you see your work as an opportunity to pursue excellence and bring glory to God and good to His creation? What about your safety? Is safety a value that trumps all else? Or would you be willing to sacrifice some of that perceived security so that some of those around you might be blessed and served? Maybe you might even, to make it real practical, Invite an Iranian citizen into your home because they can't go home because they might not be able to come back. I don't know what it looks like for you, but are you willing to forego some of your safety because the Word of God does not promise us that, but it calls us to something more? One of my favorite quotes, I think it's Beth Moore who said it. She said, it's it's a small thing, the marks that we make in our Bibles. But what is important is the marks that our Bibles make in us. Brothers and sisters, if we are truly living underneath the authority of God, as we encounter His Word, our lives should be different. We should be changed. And what our text reveals this morning is that change may not always be comfortable. It may not always be fun. But in order to live underneath the authority of God's Word, we must be willing to stand uncomfortable in obedience. Christ Central, are you willing to do that? For the sake of God's glory and the good of our city, are you willing to do that? I'm going to close by pointing you to another parallel scripture, one that comes much later. What's interesting in terms of the ancient Jewish understanding of the talit, this garment that I'm wearing, is that the Hebrew word that is used for the corner... In 1 Samuel, kanap, over time comes to mean wings as well. And I think you can see where that imagery comes from, right? The wings. As some of you may know, one of the pervasive themes in the Psalms is that refuge is found 
in the shadow of God's wings. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. But listen to how this gets worked out in reference to the tallit. Some of you may recall when Jesus commands the use of the prayer closet in Matthew 6. Okay, the verse says, But you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What's fascinating here is that most Hebrew scholars do not believe that the prayer closet is actually a place. But what they believe is that when Jesus is asking people to go to their prayer closet, this is what he was saying. This is your prayer closet. So you'd go in the temple and you'd actually see people wearing these garments, covering their face, believing that they are safe and secure here underneath the authority of God's word in their prayer closet. No distractions. Just God in his word over me, protecting me. Shelter there. One more verse. I I think this is pretty cool. One of the most clung to prophecies from the Old Testament about the coming Messiah was Malachi 4.2. It says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Again, we have this theme of healing found in the wings, the wings of the Son of Righteousness, this Messiah who is to come. And then we hear these stories in the New Testament. It shows up in three of the four Gospels. There's this lady who's been struggling with an issue of blood for 12 years. Some of you guys might remember this story. And, and if you remember, she fights through the crowd. She's elbowing her way through just so she can touch the corner of Jesus' robe. And since you've been paying attention, that makes a whole lot more sense now than it ever has, right? She grabbed the corner of Jesus' robe. And Jesus freaks out. Why? Why does he freak out? Because of Malachi 4.2. Because when this woman reached out and touched Jesus' cloak, Jesus realized there's somebody here who gets it. Somebody is believing the text, right? They're putting their faith in Malachi 4.2 that there is healing in my wings. And he sees it and he, he responds to the faith of this woman. Brothers and sisters, there is healing to be found in the wings of our Savior. We know it to be true. When Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross, he invited us to come in and take refuge in the shelter of his wings. And the way we do that is we come and we submit to his authority. We submit to his word, trusting that he is for us and not against us and believing that we are safer under here than we are out there. Amen? Let's take that home with us today. Let's pray. God, I know that is so hard to believe. I confess for myself that it is so hard to believe that I'm actually safer here underneath your authority, underneath your word, because you are good and faithful, and your word is a good gift. It's a blessing. God, would you compel us today to come underneath your authority to trust your holy and inspired word? to apply it to our lives and seek to live in it each and every day. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.